glad to be part of this project. So thanks for your support and involvement with that. All right. Hey, transitioning now. Um, we are now in a, uh, you find yourself here in the second part of a four-part series that we are doing called Jesus What If. All right, Jesus, what if? And here's the basic premise behind this thing. We are saying that what if you could take a moment in your busy life in, the, in all the things that are going on in your world and you could stop for a, a few minutes and just ask the question, what if Jesus is actually who he says he is? Then what difference does that make for me? What if? What if Jesus is actually who he says he is? Now, when we talk about Jesus, I'm talking not about Jesus as an idea or a good luck charm or some kind of mysterious person or, or morality or coming even to church or even Christians. I'm talking about a real flesh and blood man who walked on the earth who also happened to be fully God. And so I said last week, kind of God in a bod, okay? So fully God, fully man, there he was. Now, when we talk about that, I said this, that there are some things, there are some questions, if you will, whose answers escape me about Christianity as a whole, but other questions whose answers I can't escape. It's kind of a, a complicated sentence there, but the point is, for me in my faith journey, there's some things that I'm confused about and I don't fully understand even about Christianity, and I'm personally okay with that, and I hope you are too, but there are some things that I can't get away from, and one of those things are I can't get away from the person of Jesus. And last week I ticked over this list, don't worry, I won't go through it all right now, but I went through why is it that I land that Jesus as a historical person actually I think was, was real and was who he says he was. We said this, that we have non-Christian historians, Josephus is one of those and others, um, who testified to the reality that a man named Jesus walked the planet. The early religious opponents could have produced his body, but they didn't because they weren't able to because I believe he actually was resurrected. The disciples' lives were changed. Peter, one of the disciples who went from denying Jesus to a junior high girl to end up, you know, coming to say that he wanted to be crucified upside down for his faith. That's a pretty significant turnaround. A day of worship changed from Saturday to Sunday. Um, the crowd saw him. 500 people at one time saw him. And then the last one, maybe the most compelling of all, that even his brother thought he was God. Just pretty significant if you imagine what would it take for you to get your brother or sister to believe that you're actually God, okay? Jesus' brothers did. All right, both James as well as Judas, who wrote the little book called Jude. All right, so here's some things that were kind of behind where I was going last week with Jesus, you know, what if. Last week we said this, that if Jesus was actually God, then the resurrection changes everything about everything. And we said that if the resurrection is true, that it infuses hope in places where there is no hope, that it changes our world from a world of natural birth and death order to a birth and life order, that it goes from just being born and heading toward death to being born, heading toward death, and then heading to life again. And because of that hope at the end of life, it changes everything about the way that we live right now. Now, here's what I want to say this morning, that there will come a time, if there hasn't come a time already for you, where you are going to question kind of everything that you believe or everything that you've been taught about your faith or about who you think God is. There will come a time, if it hasn't already happened to you, where you're going to be pressed into, is what I say I believe really true? And that time may come in a time of marital crisis for you, when you start wondering, is this really the person I should be with? I can't believe they did or he did. This may come at a time when a relative or loved one dies. Or, like many of many of us now is dealing with cancer, kind of a life-threatening situation. You may begin to look and say, okay, if there is a good God, how come this happens? If Jesus says, I offer you life and life abundant, come on, how does this happen? 
It may happen to you because you'll be dealing with a hypocritical Christian, someone who says they're a follower of Jesus but is just a fool outside of church on Sunday mornings. You're going to look at them and you're going to say, boy, I'm not going to follow whatever it is that they follow. And you're going to be pressed into at some point in your life, is this thing that I say I believe or the people around me told me I should believe, is this really mine and is this really true? And I just want you to know, in those moments when you're really kind of pressed into that and pushed against, is this thing really true? That really the question that you're asking, the primary question you're asking, you're going to be asking is, what do I believe about Jesus? What do I believe about Jesus? Because in that moment it comes back to if Jesus is actually who he says he is. If Jesus is actually who he says he is, then, and here's where I want to go this morning, then, he sets the standard for what is true. If Jesus is actually God, and here's what I want to try to lay out to you this morning, that he sets the standard for what is true. So in those moments where you're going to be pressed against, I don't know if I should follow, move, or go in this direction. Just want you to know, if Jesus is actually God, I believe that he sets the standard for what is true. Now, I want to take you on a little, little journey here. Uh, truth, 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 what is truth? Uh, difficult question. Here's what we know about truth. Um, truth is both, both relative and absolute. <clears throat> now, those of you who are around church circles and you hear me say truth is relative, uh, hear, hear me out. This past weekend, uh, I think it was Thursday evening, I was doing something in the garage, and uh, my wife opened the garage door and said, quick, I need you in here. And I thought, okay, what, what happened? You know, and and uh, I come in, and basically our, the heating um, element in our stove blew up. Okay, it kind of exploded. Mini little fire event in the home, just kind of fun. That gets you, kind of shakes things up a little bit. So a minor little um, stove explosion, that thing blew, and then the heating element, if you know how they're made, it, it just fell off its little stand or little holder and boom, kind of hit the bottom of the stove. And because of the heat in that moment, it essentially welded itself onto the, the stove, you know, on the bottom. And it was glowing and then white and white stuff's flying everywhere. And Jen's like, little fire, you know, going on here. So I come in. And we have a broken heating element in the stove. So we end up calling an electrician we know. <laughs> Happens to be my father-in-law, for those who don't know that. He lives just up the, the hill from us. And, uh, and here's one of the things he says. He says, hey, that's an easy fix. Truth is relative. Isn't it? Truth is relative. It's absolutely true for him to make that statement, isn't it? Absolutely. He's done it how many times? I don't know. How many times in 150 years that he's been alive has he done <laughs> heating element changes? But it's true for him to make that statement. Now, for me, easy, easy. All right? So first heating element change that I have to make. Now, here's, here's, so truth is relative, right? Truth is relative. But now here's the truth as well. The heating element has been fixed by me. <laughs> now, that is an absolute truth, right? That is an absolute truth. You can come to my house and I will show you. I will gladly actually show you my oven. I will pull that down and I will show you. Yes, I did accomplish it and yes, it was done. I cut my finger along the way, but we made it through the process, all right? We got it done. We got over little hurdles and we got it done. So truth is both relative and absolute, okay? And this is the reality that we live in. Now, some of you have, were 
were raised in different generations and have different reactions to the concept of relativity or absolute truth. We want to talk about that for a minute. So in order to talk about that, I want you to imagine, it's not hard to imagine in Lancaster County, imagine a, a farm right now, in, in a, a farm home that is handed down from generation to generation to generation to generation, okay? So we have a, whether it be a, a farmette or a several acre farm and the, the, the home itself becomes occupied in time by several different generations of people. Now, let me ask you this. When this happens, okay, when it's time for mom and dad who have worked the farm for whatever, let's say 30 years, um, and they move on and their son or or daughter-in-law, let's say, or daughter or son-in-law, whoever it is, okay, moves into the home. How many many sons and daughters-in-law who move in say, I love everything mom and dad did with this place. And I'm going to keep it just like it was. You already, you already told me the answer, right? So isn't it normal, isn't it normal for us to, over time, when a, when a farmhouse is handed off from shag carpet and, you know, kind of lime green, whatever, to, to move over here and say, boy, that, whoever thought of wallpaper, isn't that terrible, right? And you move, pull all the wallpaper off, and then wainscoting you bring into that, and then whatever kind of uh, crown molding push into that, and then you know, get rid of the carpet and the, and the linoleum and put hardwood floors in if you can. I mean, there's all kinds of transitions that happen, right, that are just part of the normal change of what happens when you move from one person living in it to another, right? You guys tracking with me? Now, here's what I want to say. If you can take that image and use this as a metaphor now, that this is exactly the way that it works for us in real life. So the, the worldview system that... It gets handed off from generation to generation to generation to generation. The way that little people are raised in a home gets handed off that way as well. So that um, one grandparent's view of technology might, I'm just saying might, be different than their grandkids. Possibility, right? One generation's view of communication and money and family commitments just might just might, off chance here, might just be different than the next generation, right? And even the next generation, right? Because there's reactions to what we have seen, right? Isn't that true? That this is what happens. And so the question becomes, what is true at all? So you can, you can imagine if you walk into the farm home, we have essentially um, generational experts will say, whoever those people are, that we have four generations living today. Uh, they'll label them this way. They'll say we have traditionalists, which is our oldest living generation, and then we have baby boomers, and then we have Gen Xers, and then we have millennials, okay? So if you kind of take those four categories of people, and you say you could walk into the farm home of a traditionalist, and you would see, if you could go back to this moment, um, walk into their office, you'll see on their um, desk a thing that's about this big, and it has like a banana over top of it and a little circle thing, and it's called a rotary phone. You kind of turn and then wait for it to go back and then turn and wait for it to go back and turn and wait for it to go back. You guys remember those things? Yep. Rotary phone. Now, you go into the home of a baby boomer and they say, who in the world would ever want to wait that long to make a phone call? So we have push-button phones. They even begin to experiment with cordless, wireless phones, which allows you to lose the phone everywhere in the house that you want to. And then you move over to uh, Gen Xers who are like, man, I can take the phone now from just my office to, to on my person anywhere, and I can make a phone call on my cell phone anywhere I want to. In fact, it's so cool that I can actually make it sound like a rotary phone 
if I want to. Amazing, okay? And then you get to the millennials over here who are like, what's a phone? What's a phone? Like, you actually phone me, you call people and talk to them? I just Snapchat, man. I just text people. I mean, seriously, you, you talk to people on that thing? What's that about? Okay, so every generation shifts and changes like that. And it's the same way with, with our faith, and it's the same way with, with everything. It's the same way with how we see gender roles and money and views of authority and everything else like that. And so the question for us becomes, as we build, if you will, a worldview, um, what basis, if you will, what platform are we building on? Um, Ravi Zacharias, who is a Christian apologist, um, meaning that he's a theologian, professional theologian, he recounted a story when he went to the Ohio State University. And he went to the Ohio State University and saw this building, uh, the Wexman Center for the Arts. Uh, this building, he said, he got a tour of because the people that he were hosting him at Ohio State wanted him to see the new, essentially postmodern building that had been built um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, this thing was done. And this building, you can kind of tell a little bit by the picture, but here's the thing. You walk into this building and there are stairways that lead to nowhere. You can kind of see one even right there on the outside of it. There's pillars that support nothing. The idea is, to meant, is, is meant to express, hey, in our postmodern worldview, we don't need to think the way that other people thought. We don't need to have a modern worldview anymore, modernist being scientific, linear, logical. We can be postmodern. There can, it can be nonlinear, unscientific, experiential, kind of whatever works for us in the modern and postmodern debate. And here's what Zachariah said, and I appreciate that because this drives us now to where we need to go this morning. And he said, this is a great building. Now, let me ask you, did you build the foundation the same way you built the inside? Did you build the foundation the same way you built the inside? His point being that when we inherit even the homes of our grandparents and parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, you know that you do not, as much as you want to change the shag carpet and you want to change the, the curtains and the wallpaper, you rarely, if ever, drill down and change the foundation upon which that home is built. Right? You don't do that. But, but if you're going to add a sunroom, then you'll add another little kind of annexed foundation, essentially a support base to put that on. And the question for us becomes not so much a conversation about what changes out there in terms of the surface issues, like whether we should use phones and cell phones or how the internet works in terms of our relationships and truth, but rather, what is underneath? What is underneath the worldview that you and I are building today? Why is it? that you think the way you do about money? Why is it that you think the way you do about, about your relationships? And what is underneath that worldview? To this I say, now we have to go, in my estimation, back to what is truth? What is truth? What is it that I build everything in my life on? What is it that I build my view of parenting on, my view of singleness on, my view of dating on, my view of faith on, my view of work, business, how I relate in politics to my political leaders. What is it that I build all of this on? Okay? And this is where we go, back into the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of John. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew around you, in the row right there near you, a red book. Um, it says, you know, Bible on the front. There you go. And uh, it is... Gospel of John is the fourth book in what we call the New Testament, about a third of the way into your Bible there. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John was one of the apostles or followers or disciples of Jesus, um, and he is recounting essentially the history 
uh, of the, the work of Jesus as he walked on this planet. And so John chapter 18 is a, a place that I want to go because the question is raised here that is a question that we all ask and we all have to wrestle with. And it's asked by someone who we may not expect it to be asked by. So John chapter 18, verse 28, and we're going to bring it here so we can just pick up the story of what's happening. This is in the middle of Jesus' trial um, for, uh, from the Jews. So verse 28, then the Jews led uh, Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Isn't that neat? Just pause on that for a minute. If you know what's happening, the Jews are about to push for an execution of somebody unjustly, but they wanted to be sure to eat the Passover later. So they didn't want to be unclean. So they didn't want to walk across a threshold of a door. But we'll kill somebody. But as long as we can eat the Passover, everything's good. Amazing how religion uh, takes the heart out of us. Okay, verse 29. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? Verse 30. If he were not a criminal, they replied, would we, uh, we would not have handed him over to you. In other words, we don't really know, but we just want to tell you, we think he's a criminal. Verse 31. Pilate said, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. By the way, we've got to eat the Passover. We need you to kill the guy. Verse 32. Verse 32. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. So Pilate then went back inside his palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus does what he normally does and he, instead of just answering a question, asks another one. And the reason he does that is he's trying to get underneath the motivation of the question asker, which is not a bad thing to do sometimes with your own children, with your own employees and employers is asking a question right on the back of a question. So Jesus um, replies to him, and he says, Is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? To which Pilate decides, since you can ask a question, I'm going to ask a question. Am I a Jew? He replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Aha. So you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world. To testify to the, to the what? To the truth. This is why I came into the world to testify to the truth. He states it in a rather absolute kind of way, doesn't it? As if truth exists in an absolute kind of way. And then he says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Hmm. And then Pilate asks the question, which we all ask, and we don't always just put it this way because it's too philosophical and too deep a question to answer. But he says, and his, his question echoes for all generations, what is truth? What is truth, he asked. And without waiting for the answer, With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. And isn't that the question that we ask? Come on, what is truth? Come on, what is it? What is it? What is it? What what is truth? And here's what I want to say. Jesus has already answered Pilate's question. He's already answered this question that our culture asks. What is true? I mean, of all the things that are going on, what is true? 
What is the foundation upon which I build in my home if I kind of take over the home from grandma and grandpa? If I kind of take this over, what is the foundation that this thing is built on? How should I just fundamentally view my relationships? How should I fundamentally view God? How should I fundamentally view money and the future? How should I fundamentally view all those things? What is truth that all this is built on? What is the truth? Come on, what is the truth? Jesus has already answered that question, and he answers it in two primary ways, and he actually does it in the Gospel of John. John helps us see that. And so, just back it up one chapter. John chapter 17, I want to take you to two more places in the Gospel of John. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying what we call um, in church circles the high priestly prayer. It's kind of his final prayer for all people who will end up following him um, to to, uh, essentially prayer for their unity and their growth and their faith. And in there, he makes a statement that is very profound in light of our conversation today. John chapter 17, verse 17. And check it out there. He says this. He's, right, he's speaking to, to God the Father. He says, sanctify them by the what? Truth. Sanctify them by the truth. So we're on the truth issue again. So again, what is the truth? And then he says, he makes a statement right after that. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. And so he makes this statement. Jesus makes a statement kind of in the middle of the prayer context, sanctify them by the truth and your word is truth. He says essentially that the words that God has spoken are truth, which is, big word here, a propositional statement. He's saying this stands as a foundation. Your word is truth. The word as we understand it now, what you're holding in your hand or in the palm of your hand if you're scrolling through your your phone or your tablet and you're kind of reading that online or whatever, that the word of God The words that God has spoken have become whatever this category of truth is. This is what Jesus says is true. The words of God become the foundation. Now, it's not only that. Also in John chapter 14, because this is the second piece that's very interesting. So back it up just three chapters, if you will, to John 14. And in verse 1, Jesus begins this way. And he's speaking to the disciples who are anxious. And he says, uh, don't let your hearts be troubled. And you can be sure that they already are. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you may also go where I am. You know the, the way to the place where I am going. To which Thomas says to him, hey, quick question, Jesus. I'm lost. Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can... How can we know the way? Yeah, I don't know. Does anybody else know? My heart is troubled. I don't know where you're going. And so then Jesus answered and says this. This is a verse that some of you who've been in church for a long time you memorized. Others, this is, a, this is a pretty profound verse. He says, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. Have you thought about that before? That Jesus is taking what is, not, is truth and saying it's not just a propositional statement. Truth is not just words on a page. Truth is not just a cold, removed, emotionless book that you should build your life on. He says in John 14, 6, you want to know what truth is? I am. Truth. Which I'm like, well, that's confusing. You can't be a person and be truth. And Jesus says, "I, I am the way. I am the truth. And I'm alive, which means this, that truth, this foundation that we build everything on in our lives, is both propositional and personal. 
It's both propositional and personal. It, it is both built on the foundation of the words of God, what we now call the Bible and the scriptures, and it's also built on the character and the life, the decisions, the will, the emotion, the impact, the affections of a person named Jesus. And there will be times when we wish that we could look at the Bible and say, I wish that it had an answer for how I could do this and this and this and this and this. But the Bible is not primarily an answer book about how to live everyday life. It doesn't have this, the prescription for every little issue that we face. But it does point us back to both the person of Jesus and God as our Father. To say in the context of who Jesus was and how he lived and how he worked and his ethic what do we understand to be the truth from Jesus? The truth of how we live. And so we see the truth, the foundation upon which I believe we're to build, is both propositional and personal, which means I need to get to know both the Bible and Jesus. I need to get to know both. And so let me take you here. Where to go this way? Oh, 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 oh. Hold on. Here, here's, here's one thing I want to say. If we're going to get to know both the Bible and Jesus, here's what happens. Uh, there will be times along the way that you and I will push back on this truth and say, I don't like it, it's too hard, it's inconvenient, and it doesn't make sense. If I do this, I will lose money. If I do this, I may end up having to sacrifice my work, my job. If I do this, then I'm going to lose out. And here, here's the thing. The Bible has a lot of hard things to say. Jesus has a lot of hard things to say. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your spouse in, in, in a self-sacrificial way. Check this one out. Pray for political leaders. All right? Some of us are a little too wrapped up in the, the feeling that if we only did this and we only did that, then that person wouldn't be in power or whatever. Ooh, the Bible's telling us, hey, God directs the hearts of rulers. He puts them in place. These are hard teachings. There are hard teachings that you and I will look at in the Bible and in Jesus, and we're going to be tempted to say, come on, I, that's too hard. I mean, no sex before marriage? Are you kidding me? Who does that anymore? What, do we live in the 50s? I want to change that room and rebuild that and redecorate it. Come on, come on now. We, we live in a post-sexual revolution world. Are you kidding me? Who does that anymore? Just saying. What, what, what is the truth? What is the foundation upon which the worldview is built? And so we're going to push back on the things that are inconvenient, the things that we think are not fun, the things we think are limiting, we're going to say, I don't like that, I don't want that, <clears throat> too hard, too hard, too hard. And so here's what we have. With one of our core values at GPC is this. We, we talk about core values, um, and, and here's, here's one of the statements we have. That at the beginning, middle, and end of the day, God is in charge and what he wants goes. The Bible reveals God's clearest desires. And when what I want conflicts with what God wants, he wins. And we ask a question, the follow-up question, to each of our core values. And this one, we ask this question. How much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life? How much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life? We say here that the Bible reveals God's clearest desires. And it points to Jesus. How much authority am I willing to give to God and his word? And so, if Jesus was actually God, then he sets a standard for what is true. And then here's another thing that's true, I believe. This. That one of the best investments in your future is to know both the Bible and Jesus. One of the best investments you can make in your future is to know both what in the world is the propositional truth of God? In other words, what, are, what, are, what does the Bible teach? What does it say? It's there. How can I learn it? And then let me study, see, and understand, and explore the life of Jesus. 
and his ethic, his methodology, his teachings. Who is he? What does he mean by what he says? How does that impact my relationships? How does that impact my money? How does it impact my faith, my kids, my friends? How does that impact my retirement? What does this do for me? How does this impact? Now, two more pressing questions. Number one, what room, if you go back to this metaphor of the room, what room are you in the most right now? In other words, if you could say, metaphorically speaking, that you spend the majority of your time in the room of your life, if you can imagine the room of your life being, you know, I kind of have my playroom and my work room and my, my family room and my, my nothing room, which only men have, okay? And then, you know, my family room and then out here I have the in-law room, okay, over here, you know? If I have all these rooms in, in my life that I go into and, and move in and out of, that what is feeding that or what are my decisions based on when I'm in those rooms? And my question to you this morning, just to kind of press this in a little bit more, is what room do you find yourself in the most right now? For some of you, it's the work room, and you're really getting hard after your job, your career, you're building that, you're pushing into that hard, and you're spending a lot of time there. And so the question becomes, as you think as a man, as a woman, when I spend the majority of my time at work, am I living, am I operating, am I functioning in a way, am I making decisions in a way that is built on the truth both of the scriptures and of the person of Jesus? For some of you right now, the most pressing room you're in is this anxiety about your marriage. And you're wishing that it was different and it's not, but you kind of keep coming back into that room even when you're at work or at play or whatever, you kind of come back into the marriage room and you think about that and you process that and you wonder and you hope and you're anxious and you're not sure and then you go through yes it can and no it can and whatever and you go through all those things. So some of you are in that room. Just want you to think now, what is the room that you spend the majority of your time in? Some of you, you're in the parenting room. And you're in there more often than others. And you just are thinking, man, I hope and I wish for my kids that they become whatever. Okay? Some of you are in the, I'm in school room and I have friends and I kind of hope to be cool room. I mean, that's where you're at. And you kind of go through that and live through that kind of day in and day out. And like, I, I hope I connect. I hope people like me. And I just want to be accepted, you know, in where I'm at. So I just want you to think for a minute, where do you spend the majority of your time, your mental energy right now? Okay? And then I want you to ask this question. After that, what feeds my decisions when I'm in that room the most? What is it that feeds your decisions when you're in that room the most? Is it what the people think around you? Is it your peers in the halls in the school? Is it your family? They look at your life and say, boy, we really wish that your marriage would be different. We really wish your work would be different. And we really wish that you wouldn't spend money there and would do it here. And you're trying to work for approval of your, your mom or dad or somebody else. What informs your decisions the most? And if we're honest, if we're honest, and here this is hard, okay? If we're honest, and we're in church, so it's kind of good to say, yes, yeah, so the Bible of Jesus informs my decisions. But if we're honest, isn't it true that what informs my decisions at work sometimes way more, way more than what the Bible or Jesus has to say about anything is what my profit margin will be? I mean, doesn't that drive us? Doesn't it drive us more to think about what would my reputation be on the back end of what I do here? Doesn't that drive us? Doesn't it drive us even as parents to say, man, I'm more concerned about, we talked about this during the parenting series, doesn't it drive me a little bit more to be concerned about the last name of my children rather than the first name of my children? That the reputation of being a, whatever, a Rogers or a fill-in-the-blank, your last name, that's more important to me 
I mean, come on, what drives our decisions when we're in that room more than others? If you're single and you're wanting to be married at some point, is it this matter of I want to get rid of this feeling that people are looking at me funny because I'm not married yet, and that, that drives me to do what I do? And I just want you to be honest. Where do you spend the most time in your mind and your heart? And then what drives those decisions that you make while you are there? Okay? If it is true that Jesus was actually God, then he sets the standard for what is true in the world. There will come a time, if it hasn't come already for you, where you're going to push back hard against faith. You're going to push back hard and say, I don't know if I believe this stuff. It's just too hard. It's too inconvenient. It's too difficult. It doesn't make sense of suffering and evil in the world. And I want you to know, at that point, you're coming back to the question of who is Jesus? And if he really is God, if Jesus is really God, And I want you to know, he sets the standard for all that is true for you and for me. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can pause for a few moments this morning, kind of refresh in our minds and hearts about what we are doing in our decision-making, in our investment of our time and energies in what is driving our decisions and how much we're continuing to grow in our understanding of your word, the Bible, propositional objective truth, as well as our understanding of who the person of Jesus was, what what his teachings were, and how we come to understand uh, the morality, the ethics, the the ethos, if you will, of Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, give us courage this morning to step into this truth that underneath all of my desire to question people's assumptions about how the world works and how authority works and how my future might work and all that stuff, give us courage to continue to stay strong on the foundation. The truth, the word of God, the truth of Jesus as a person, as a God-man. We thank you that you are our Savior, that you are good God and Heavenly Father who invites us into a relationship with you. We love you, Father. Jesus' name.